Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Mid-April in MotoGP for 2022, four races down, 17 to go. But Europe is on the horizon. Portugal is next. Simon Patterson, Valentin Hurunchi and myself, Toby Moody, are here to talk about the winners and losers of the season so far. Suzuki's title chances, Miller's future, well, a lot of other people's future as well, and a quick glimpse into the future of what we think might happen in Portugal this coming weekend. Ennio Bastianini, he leads the championship after winning 50% of the races all on a 2021 Ducati. He's obviously going to be the standout winner, as it were, from these first two, first four Grand Prix, having won two of them. Um, but let's go around the table and pick out some winners and losers. Uh, Val, uh, who's your standout winner so far this year? Well, beyond Bastianini and, and Grissini, it'll it'll be Aprilia, obviously, with Aleix, uh, given the, the first win and the fact that the divorce with Grissini seems to have worked out really, really well for, for both parties. And my other slightly more obscure shout is, is the Binder brothers, which I will elaborate on later on yes i can see that simon uh for me the standout winner from the the first two races is the factory suzuki joe um i think they're the only team that has put together a bit of consistency with with mir and rins they look like they're sort of walking the walk after talking the talk over testing about how good their new bike is i think they've been a bit unlucky to to not be a bit closer to the front occasion but yeah, there's plenty there to be hopeful about. And I think they go into Europe stronger than any other combination on the grid. Well, they're leading the team's championship by 32 points. So that's a nice, healthy start after those four Grand Prix. Uh, Ennio Bastianini, yeah. And you touched on it as well, Valentin, about uh, Grassini. I mean, they've just come out of that Grassi, of the uh, Aprilia thing into Ducati. And here they are leading the title chase. Uh, the other winner will, of course, be uh, Carlo Panat. Let's just get that first mention in now, early on. Um, <laughs> the manager of Bastianini and seemingly everybody else who's flying uh, at the moment in 2022. Um, Alex Rins, you know, Suzuki, second in the championship, just five points back. Um, Val, do you think that Suzuki would be more than happy with that? Are you going to agree with Simon? Yeah, no, I think, you know what, I'm, I'm still not fully convinced as to the, the ultimate title potential of the JSXRR, but I do think they've had a really, really good start of the season because it's been it's all been really, really weird and to, to put up consistent points over this variety of tracks that's definitely not gonna suit all of them are definitely not gonna suit your bike and all of them didn't didn't suit Suzuki. I think, yeah, I think they'll be really, really pleased uh, coming to more familiar ground that they always expect to do better on. 
Um, again, I'm still not not entirely convinced that they were going to rock up to Europe and suddenly the Suzuki is going to be the bike to beat on, on any of the tracks, really. But the way, like, if, if we imagine that the season keeps playing out the way it, it is, so it'll be much like 2020, and in 2020, Suzuki was, was the bike that you wanted to have and ultimately won the title. And probably, you know, if it didn't win it with Mir, it, it also had a really good chance of winning it with Renz. And it, it looks the same way now. They have two... This also helps. They have two riders scoring consistently and scoring well. Uh, both of them title-caliber talents. So, yeah. I Again, I'm not entirely convinced that there isn't a manufacturer that's going to completely steal a march on them. But it was a good start. It was a, it was a reasonable start. The, the thing for me that stood out so far, the, the two things that have stood out for me about their sort of start to the season is one that we know that these are tracks that the bike doesn't go well at. We know that these, you know, there, there was going to be maybe Qatar. We expected something a bit better than we got from them, but they were deeply, deeply frustrated by Qatar at the end of it. Uh, they had their issues um, in Mandalika with tires. They sort of salvaged something in Argentina at a track that wasn't particularly their circuit. And then at Coda a circuit where we, we know that they've got front run and pace in the past. They they did deliver and, and Renz essentially fought for the win, even if it took him a little bit too late to get going to, to be able to stop Bastianini. But then on top of all of that, we've got a new Alex Renz this season because we've got a rider now who isn't crashing his brains out because he's got a bike that he doesn't have to override. Um, you know, the, the difference in Renz and Mir in two, 2020, whenever Mir did win the title, I think, was that when things got difficult, Rins overrode the bike and crashed, and Mir settled for solid points. And it was such a bizarre season that settling for solid points was enough to basically win a title. But this year, I think that Rins, who is arguably the faster rider, now has the ability to not have to crash out in those circumstances, and we're going to see that paying out. Spot on. Yeah, ultimately in twenty in twenty twenty, Rins put himself in an early hole by getting injured. Yeah, and had to take a bit too many risks to try to make up that that gap, and in in the end, ended up crashing at, at the Red Bull ring from a really good position. Uh, honestly, if he was healthy for the start of the season, I think there was a good chance that was his season. So if this if we're looking at a repeat of that. Rins is a is a good one to bet yeah. on. I, st- I still don't love their qualifying form. Their qualifying form is suspect, but we'll we'll see how that plays out exactly. Yeah, I mean he's turned a massive corner, hasn't he? Rins one podium throughout last season, full stop, and here he is second in the championship. He says he's seen a mine coast coach over the winter. He says that he's in a better place, and he's. You have to go over the limit to realise where the limit is, whether or not it's mentally, whether or not it's on qualifying lap, whether or not it's on a race lap, and you bin it, as he did last year, ad infinitum, it seemed to be. Focus of the, the Mudder GP Unlimited, it was almost a bit of a thing, wasn't it? Oh, well, Alex is crashing out, and there's the Suzuki team with their head in their hands. So, mm, yeah, you know, summing up what you say, Valentin, you know, there's going to be two Suzukis now, not one. And they've never had that before. And And... You know, I know you, you say their qualifying performance is a bit suspect, uh, Val, but it's only suspect whenever you take it with those Ducatis that we expected would dominate qualifying every week. If you take the Ducatis out, 
and I know it, it's not that easy and it's not how it works in real life, but Suzuki are fighting to be the best of the yeah, rest now, but... which says quite a bit about how their qualifying performance has improved. You know, they're beating Yamaha in qualifying, who the last two seasons have been the qualifying kings. Yeah, you, you can't take the Ducatis out. That's, that's basically it. No, I, I know that too. But but if it's, if it's a whole lot easier to get past a Ducati in the final laps of a race... It's better to have five Ducatis in front than, than four Hondas or four Yamahas. And it's two against eight with Suzuki. So it's just yeah. sheer data, sheer gigabytes that they're missing out on. Um, that will never go away. There's, um, crikey, the only time you get more than two Suzukis on the grid is when we'd have a wild card in Japan in the modern era. Um, they've never yeah. had a satellite four-stroke squad, never. Never, never, never. No. So uh, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, it's too early to say because he was a bit of a late signing with how the bike's going to work. But anything that Livio Supo can do, do you think there's a weak point in the, in the structure of the team? Is there anything he can do short term, Simon? I, I think the things that Supo will do short term will be to make sure that the riders are sorted for next year and take that off the table as a distraction. I think that, that his number one priority has to be having two riders signed for next year, um, preferably the two that they already have based on what we're seeing from them right now. So, so yeah, I think that that will be his, um, that'll be his primary focus right now. More than you know anything with the team structure. Because the team structure has always been good. You know, the, the legacy of Davide Brivio means that there's never been an issue there. Okay, okay. Well, he'll he'll work all that out. He knows what he's doing. So, you know, Ducati winners, but not all Ducati have been winners because we've had some Ducati losers so far this year. Uh, one of the championships, my championship favourite, when we did our pre-season podcast, uh, Pekka Banyaya, I mean, pff, it's just not worked in any shape or form so far for him. He's got a lot of work to do. Um, it's it's a conundrum for Ducati, isn't it, Val? How do you see it? Uh, yeah, but you know, it was also my my preseason favorite, and in that sense, no podiums in the first four races. Obviously, you just you can't do that when you're a title contender. The good news for Banyai is that nobody else has really seized the moment. Nobody else is really putting up any sort of consistently good points, even you know. Even Bastianini, even the Suzukis will look at certain certain races already and see handfuls that they've they've effectively missed. Uh, but I'm not sure how how worried to be about Banyaya just yet because there have been moments where it sort of looked like he's rediscovering something resembling his end of 2021 form, and I don't. Kota wasn't very impressive, but I don't think he's great at Kota. Like Kota was the, out of his six race, phenomenal end of 2021, Kota was the one race where he never really looked like winning of those six races. He was on pole, but he never really looked like winning. Uh, he won four of the other ones, and he would have won the fifth one if he didn't didn't crash out, if I recall correctly. So we have to we have to see in Europe, really. But it's... You know, whichever way you paint it, uh, four races, no podiums. It's just not good enough when you're a, when you're a title hopeful and a title contender. And Banyai still is, but he's 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 dug himself a bit of an an early hole for a, for a variety of reasons, a, a lot of which have been a bit difficult to parse. Bagnaya, from you know, we we've seen multiple times in the past that Bagnaya 
is perhaps not great when his back is up against the wall. Um, you know, he dominated the last half of the of last year, except the one race where he couldn't crash and he did. Uh, the year prior as a rookie, we, we saw him multiple times get himself into a position to fight for a win for the first time and crash. Um, and the problem this year perhaps is that he started the season with that pressure rather than finish it with it because specifically everyone spent all winter talking about how he was going to be the guy to beat this year. Um, he's got to be pretty pissed off at Ducati, to be honest. Um, they have made a misstep somewhere with the development of the bike because I know that it's always better to be on the new machine because the new machine is where the development will come, but he's got to be looking at Bastianini and just thinking, I want my old bike back. I want my old bike back because I don't think, well, I know we wouldn't be seeing the same problems from, from Bagnaya if he was still in the 2021 bike, because obviously the 2021 bike is working very, very well. Um, they will get the machine sorted. They will find a base setting. They will find a rhythm. Every weekend we speak to him, he sounds a little bit more confident that they have found that that base setting. But, you know, they need to find it sooner. Or like Val says, there just won't be a title challenge. It's just going to be too late. Time's exactly. ticking. Yeah, yeah. Time is ticking. I mean, come on. It's, as I said, they're winners and they're losers in this part of the podcast with with one factory they, they must be at sixes and sevens Val uh, in, in terms of you know in terms of it, it it's always better to be on the new bike you say Simon and that's that's true from a purely that's true in a vacuum but we've seen we've seen cases in MotoGP where that even over the course of the season the new bike didn't really overperform the old bike and obviously as usual I'm bringing up the, the Yamaha cases of when the of when the the old bike was the bike to have, and it's not just the Zarco Tech three times. Uh, honestly, I still I still do believe somewhere in my heart that if Fabio Quartararo was left with the twenty nineteen machine in twenty twenty, I still believe that title was going to be his fairly comfortably. Uh, you know, we will never know, but that's that's my feeling there. So. The more races go on, where we see the the twenty nineteen bike or the the twenty twenty one bike Vene Bastianini still be competitive, and the twenty twenty two Ducati still have teething problems, the more nervy everyone's going to get there, and that includes that includes Banyaya. I can't imagine there's any worse feeling than than looking at other garages and seeing your past bike that you won four out of six should have been five out of six to end the season and going well they gave my bike to somebody else and they built me this new thing that doesn't work we'll see well, you know it's quote of the podcast Val quote of yeah. the podcast you know hey, that's it you've just you've just you've just put four races yeah. into nine seconds <laughs> yeah but you know 21 races so we'll we'll see uh, you know again the the last year's Ducati wasn't the absolute machine it became towards the end of the season so this year's Ducati may well just go one, two, three, four, five, six. Every there's not six of them. There's five of them. Sorry, but yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Every race for the second half of the season. We don't know. But but if it does do that, there's still no guarantee that it's going to do it in enough time to win a championship, which is kind of Ducati's repeated feeling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Val, you also mentioned the the Binder brothers, uh, winners and losers, all in one. Yeah, I agree. 
Winners, winners. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, but I, no, I think winners. I think winners are. I mean, yeah. Uh, you could you could say Brad. You could say Brad's a a loser because he doesn't have the points total corresponding how well he's been riding. Because in in one race his uh, right height adjustment device got stuck in, uh, costing him points clearly. And in another race, uh, KTM was no good, but. Ultimately, I think whenever we've had normal representative conditions in a level playing field, Brad has been comfortably the best KTM, not just in race trim, which we've gotten used to, but in qualifying. He's just been the best of the four. There's, I remember being really, I'd even say flabbergasted when KTM announced that he was re-signed early on through 2024. I was like, well, why not wait? What reason is there not to wait? But clearly they've seen something. Clearly they've realized that the more experienced Binder accrues on certain tracks, the more... Because he's always you know, he's always been questionable on Friday, Saturday, and then really good on Sunday. And clearly they've had the data that allowed him to see that the more experience he gains, the, more, the better the starting position for a weekend will be for him. So on Friday and Saturday, he'll be every bit as good as Sunday. And so far that... We've really more or less seen that. I mean, he's still he's still very effective in race trim, but he's also now a pretty a pretty great qualifier compared to the other KTM's. Um, he's just been he's just been really good, and that extension now looks like a complete no brainer. I and mean, he looks like a, he looks like the guy who could bring KTM their first their first title. And and as for Darren, I think Darren's just punched well above, I don't want to say punched above his weight, because that's you know, demeaning a bit, I, I'm going to say punched above our expectations of his weight, because the guy stepped up from Moto3, but clearly he's being aided by the fact that the Yamaha is friendlier to the rookies than any other bike, but also is you know clearly has some talent, because I expected there to be at least one or two races where he's hopelessly adrift of the other rookies, and that just has not happened, he's been He's not with Bezeki, who's on another level whatsoever uh, compared to the other rookies. But the level's been there. He's fighting the the KTM's regularly. He's fighting Fabio Di Gian Antonio regularly, and I, I think often is ahead really. And he, even on one lap pace, he's he's there. He's right there. And I I did not expect that. So kudos, chapeau. That's really good news for for the season because we do not want. We don't want anybody to be adrift, and he's not. He's you know he's good enough to be here. Well done. The, the thing that's impressed me even more about Darren's attitude is, or about his his year has been his attitude. Um, <clears throat> he's come in, obviously has actually taken on board all the criticism that there's been about him getting that seat, and when people constructively criticize him, like Remy Gardner did at the first round of the year, he takes it on board and he tries to learn from it. Um, He's talking to lots of people. Lots of people are giving him feedback, it seems. The other Yamaha riders, Davizioso, um, his brother, the people he's battling with. And and he's listening to them. And that, more than anything else, is what's going to sort of ensure a bit of a long-term future. If he'd come in, rode like a Moto3 rider, made stupid lunges, caused people to crash, smashed into people you know, didn't pay attention when he was on track, which are all things, let's not forget, that he did in his final Moto3 season, um, then it would have been a very short MotoGP career indeed. But the fact that he's come in, listened to everyone saying, oh, he's going to come in and do all those things, and then has tried not to do them and has tried to learn, yeah, there's 
I'm really impressed with him. Really impressed with him. Beyond the you know beyond the listening to feedback, there's also you know the really good factor of not not having much of a chip on his shoulder and just being yeah. He, he could have. He could have been really gloating about how well the start of the season has gone so far, and that has not happened. And I think just generally, I presume it's just not in his nature because he seems like an absurdly chill guy, even even more so than his brother somehow. And I think that's really going to endear him to to both RNF and Yamaha. I think there's a lot to like there in terms of in terms of personality. I think the team's going to find it a pleasure working with him. I still don't know what the honestly I don't know what the long term future is because there's so many guys who would really like that ride I think, uh, but he started as well as he could have hoped for. He's, he's doing what he needs to be doing. He's honestly he's kind of close to to Andrea Davizioso, and they're you know they're teammates on in the same team. You would not have expected that. Yeah, I mean by the very point that people are giving him advice means that they've gone, oh, do you know what? Kid's got a chance here. He's done well. He's kept his head. He's not been a buffoon in the first four Grand Prix. They're going to help him. That's what you've just said, Simon, in, in a roundabout way. Um, not the easiest of teams, I don't think, to to, to be in. Uh, I don't think they've got all the money in the world. That's a question. Uh, Simon's facial expression, if you could see that. Um, and also, you know, they, they haven't got the best kit in the world. The Yamaha, even the fast Yamaha is not the fastest thing out there at the moment, full stop. So, um, yes, he, um, he might be doing a complete 180 very quickly in how people who are, are, are perceiving the guy, are perceiving the guy. So I think that's, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, for me, obviously, it's, it's just a sore thumb, which is the losers being Honda. You know, the leading Honda in the World Championship is Paul Espargaro, 11th position, and he's 38 points out of the 61 that Bastianini is leading the championship by, 38 points back. Uh, I know that Marc Marquez hasn't been to uh, to two Grand Prix, restarted two Grand Prix, but even so, they are, they are in a whole heap of trouble. Um, I know that they've tried to flatten the, 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 the mountain, as it were, as to how... Peaky the bike is for one rider. They're trying to make it more user-friendly, but they've still got a lot of work to do. Honda are doing the like the right thing in their bike, clearly, and it's you know it's gonna it's gonna pay off in the in the long term. But the what we saw in the preseason does seem to have painted a, a slightly wrong picture of just how sorted that bike is and just how much of an instant upgrade it is. And for for me, that's just you know that's going to the to the two LCR guys who we've seen be much better than this and who are both suddenly suddenly at a loss completely even even more so than last year and more so than in 2020 when at times both were in their in their best shape and you know it's it's really it's really bad timing for both uh nakagami like we know this is a guy who can fight for MotoGP podiums and he's looked nowhere near and his problems they're a bit like they're a bit strange, they're a bit hard to understand. It sounds like there's something wrong electronically, or at least was at Kota. He wasn't getting the I think the initial kick of power out of the corners and it's 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 hard to say. It it, it it's hard to say what exactly is going on there, but the problem is the longer it goes on, the more the more chances there are of him showing up to a race and seeing Ayogura sign a contract for, for 2023 for his ride. 
And Alex Marquez, who was confident in the preseason that this new bike is much better for him so far, has arguably taken a, a step back compared to where he's been before. Just it's it's not working for him, and it for, in Kota was just a complete. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not going to say the word I'm thinking of because we're going to get another explicit rating, but I'm just going to say horror show. I don't know what's going on with them, but it's it's really worrying because those are those are two talented guys, and where they are shows how how long of a road Honda still has to to get to where it wants to be. It's part of me thinks that maybe 2022 has been sacrificed to the gods a little bit by Honda as a learning year, as a reset year, as a a year to bury some baggage with a view to looking ahead. Um, the bike is obviously very new. New bikes take a lot of time, but this bike's going to take even more time to dial in because it is so completely new. Um, Mark Marquez has still started the season not fully fit. He is again not fit because of that huge crash at Mandalika. Paul is doing as good a job as, as really can be expected given the, the sort of some of the challenges that has been thrown his way and the two Sattler riders are, are simply not performing so part of me wonders if this year is a, a year to salvage some stuff to take some wins to not necessarily fight for the championship to fire in two new rookies next year into the satellite team to reset that element of it and then for a fully fit fully healed fully adapted Mark Marquez to come back next year and, and try and get back to the old ways because just it's not that nothing's going right for them this year but it, it does just look like they're not things haven't clicked yet and and I think it's a bit too late now it's starting to look like it's going to be too late for if things do click to make anything out of the year anyway do you think heads will roll no no because I think if heads if heads didn't roll after 2020 when Everything was awful without Mark Marquez. I think having the excuse of there's a new bike now and we're developing the new bike that's going to be better in the longer term. You know, This is a Japanese company. Long-term strategic thinking is, is not something alien to them. Um, I think that that will be enough to ensure that there's a little bit of calm inside the camp. Bike, the bike's not crap. Uh, Paul no. led like 7,000 laps in Qatar. Mark should have won at Kosa, really, if we're being honest. It you know it can it can do the job, so that's that's going to be the shield I think. But it is true that Honda has been living off of moments of big promise for the last for the injury ravaged spell of Marcus's career. It's true that they've not really there's not been anything sustained so far. So I don't think heads will roll, but I'd be surprised if there isn't at least a bit of pressure to accelerate the time frame. Another winner with his pace and with what he's shown is Jorge Martin, in my view. Unfortunately, that hasn't come full circle into points and the championship. He's 10th in the championship, but, you know, he's quick. He got knocked off. Did he get knocked off twice? Once. Indonesia. And he fell, fell the other time. Once in Qatar and he fell in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so once he's got all his stuff together, he finished second in Argentina. Um, it was a close one there. Um, it's a bit disappointing that he's so far down, but long way to go. Seventeen Grand Prix. Yeah, he's my he's my honorary loser next to Banya. I I, mm. I don't think he's had a good start of the season at all because it's just it's not working over race distances. That's mm. that's that's mm. my big worry. He's clearly we've already seen him be really good in qualifying, but there's 
there's this with the 22 bike he's fading over race distances in a way that he wasn't fading in in 2021 as a rookie where you'd expect normally to be the other way around you'd expect longevity to come in this season it's it's not happened and i don't think it's down to him i think it's down i think it's the bike they're not really he's not figured out the bike yet but i think like by he too will be looking at bastini's machine and going ah Oh, I could have been. I could have been doing the exact same thing on that, and he, he might be right. So, I, I, I'm saying he's an honorary loser. I'm not saying he's like he still should get that factory Ducati seat in my eyes. So, you know, no big deal. But I honestly, I think he is quick enough and talented enough to already this season be fighting for the title. And but but the again in a hole in an early hole. It's worth noting that um, it's kind of a, a very similar format to his Moto3 career, where he came in as a rookie, did one year. Second year, he blitzed everyone in qualifying, but never won a race until the last round of the championship. And then the third season, put together a title contention challenge and went, went up. He, for me, that that is, you know, it's still a sign of someone that is really special, is being able to do one lap pace um, on your own. And and sometimes that does take a bit of time to build everything else behind it. Um, but I think yeah, I think he's I think he needs to remember that he's still only twenty races into a MotoGP career at this point. Because the rest will all fall into place. The racecraft will come. You know, we, we, we see people who take time to learn their way around a bike, learn how to manage the tires. Jack Miller still can't do it. Um it it will come, I think. The main winner out of all of this start to MotoGP 2020 is doing it and the TV and the show and the fact that you can kind of go into a weekend going, I've got genuinely no idea who's going to win. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Do you get that impression? Is that the vibe on a Thursday night in the paddock so far, Simon? You don't know who's going to win? No, the paddock, the that is the vibe and the paddock hits it. Um, you know, it's it's nice to have a little bit of order. No, it's not. Uh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As as someone as someone who's working for a team, you know, from their perspective, it's nice to have a little bit of order. But there, there really is none at the minute. No one has a clue what's going to happen. No one has a clue who's going to win or lose. Yeah, it's 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 a lottery until mm. qualifying. I think FP four mm. qualifying. But it's also it it gives the teams a little bit of hope as well. You know. Just picking up on what you say, if you go into a weekend going, oh, crikey, we're going to be 12th, hang on a minute, we might get fourth, that puts a spring in the step of everybody as they set the garage up on a Wednesday morning. Maybe maybe it does for the teams that have already done it this season. Like, I think the if, if Grissini never win a race again this season, they'll go into every race weekend thinking that they can. Whereas, totally. you know, the, there's none of that spring in the step in Tech 3. There's none of it in the factory KTM garage because their start to the season has been so woeful. Um, despite that one wet win, because that you know, well, they're not there for wet wins, they're there for championships. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily translate across the grid. Okay, well, those are our winners and losers from our perspective so far in 2022. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Picking back up with our winners and losers from 2022 so far. Val, uh, you've been away for a break just for a moment. Yamaha, you didn't quite expand on them earlier. Yeah. Um, they they might lose the only rider who's making the bike work. So that's, that's a bad situation to be in. Uh, bike's still clearly capable of being good on... In very specific conditions, no, not very specific. In, in specific tracks and specific conditions, but it it's not looking very versatile, and it's not looking like it's working for anyone. But well, now okay, it's working for Darren Bender, I guess. But it's 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 not working for for Delby, and it's not working for for Frankie. It's it's only working for Fabio Quartararo right now, and Quartararo doesn't love seeing that, and it's not working for him often enough to where he looks like a, a comfortable title threat the way that he was last last season. And he's, you know, he's trying to really convey a picture of him, you know, shopping around for potential other rides. And whether that comes to anything, it's, it's never great. You want, you want your franchise rider to be super happy and super, super motivated. And... Fabio is not going to be at his peak motivation on weekends where he has to settle for seventh or eighth, etc. He'll try, but it's because I don't. I don't think sooner or later those seventh, eighth. I don't think we're going to have the season go on the same way it has been at the start, which means that seventh and eighth places won't be enough to win the title. So I think they're in trouble. Even if they, even if they don't lose Fabio, I think they're in trouble. And if they do lose Fabio, it's just complete. Meltdown. I I kind of agree and disagree at the same time um, because I agree. Schrodinger's son. I agree that they're in trouble, but I don't think it's necessarily all the fault of the bike. Um, Quadro has had a difficult start to the season. There's no denying that he's struggled with yeah with with the old Yamaha issues of rear grip and acceleration. Whether or not they fix themselves a little bit when we get back to circuits that better suit the bike in Europe still remains to be seen but the the bigger problem is that they have one outrider who's recovering from a huge injury they've got one rider who's a straight from Moto3 rookie and they've got one rider who's an old man that's there because the sponsor wanted him to be there I I think that they have a big issue if they lose Quadraro but it's partly an issue of their own making because they should have gone hard to find young talent to stack the field the way that everyone else in the grid has done and they failed to do it they they should have been looking i i know we've praised darren bender in this podcast we have been very complimentary about him but they should have been looking at someone who was a more established talent just in case this happened 
You know, we wouldn't be, I don't think we'd be talking about Yamaha in the same level of dire straits if they had, say, Aaron Kinnett on that bike. You know, or obviously if Raul Fernandez was on that bike. Um, because then there'd be a clear, obvious person to move up to the factory and maybe do something special if Quadraro does leave. And I don't, you know, for, for all of his successes this year so far, Darren Bender is not going to move up and be amazing on a factory bike. So I think, yeah, I think it's largely or partly a problem of their own making because of, of the way that they've allowed RNF to, well, the way that the Patronus thing imploded, perhaps, mm. is a better way of putting it. This is all a knock-on from the way the Patronus team fell apart. I think the good news is, you know, there's still there's still guys they can pick up in case something happens. Like, whether or not they manage to lure Raul Fernandez away, I mean, I don't think Kinnett's going anywhere in terms of being being able to sign Kinnett. Or, given the potential logjam at VR46 Ducati, they could go for, for Celestino Vietti. And that yeah. also could work out quite nicely because, you know, Rossi and Yamaha still retain ties. So I, I don't see why that would be a complete and, and impossibility. You don't think so? People inside RNF have... No, no, people inside RNF have mentioned the name Vietti to yeah. me. Yeah, so that makes sense. But um, none of those guys are going to be instant plug-and-play replacements for Fabio, who's... No. E- e- even if they reach that level, which is a a super high level, this is a MotoGP champion we're talking about, even if they reach that level at some point, they're definitely not going to reach it right away. So, I, just, I don't know how you replace, like, you need to have a flagship rider who can fight for the title, and Morbidelli looks like he's not back to, to where he needs to be yet. I don't know where they're getting one, if they need to get one. If Fabio leaves, I, I, I don't know. This It's really tough. I don't know who will go to replace him. I don't know where they can find a championship caliber rider, to replace Fabio if suddenly they need to replace Fabio. Try try for Bastianini, maybe, in case Bastianini feels he should be in a works bike. No idea, genuinely. Hottest thing in a paddock won't be any of the exhausts and 300 horsepower bashing through the rear sprocket. It'll be Carlo Panat's phone. Simon. Well, the, the other thing about this, though, the thing that it keeps coming back to is Fabio has nowhere else to go, I don't think. I can't I, I believe he's going to leave, Simon. I can't see him having an option to go anywhere else. Mm. I think they're stuck with each other, even if it is a loveless marriage, because I don't think the Honda option's a realistic option. I think he's a fool if he leaves. Yeah. I think he's a fool. I don't think he's a fool if he leaves, and I do, I do sort of believe the Honda thing a little bit. But also... Uh, but po- I, it's, but, sorry to interrupt, but Paul did the whole... Dazzled by HRC, dazzled by Honda. Who isn't? You know, who isn't? You know, Simon's nodding, value nodding. It is still HRC. It is almost the Ferrari of, 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 of MotoGP. If you put Ducati to one side, it is still that mysterious place. High on a mountain. But it hasn't worked for Paul. It's not a guarantee it's going to work for anybody at the moment. No, but it's, it's, it's not guaranteed if he stays either. Uh, no. Remember that Fabio did end the Yamaha title drought that spanned some really good riders and some seasons that looked decent at one point but never never fully came together. And remember that there were signs of something cracking even at the end of last season, not just because Fabio went into title conservation mode but because he stopped getting pole positions, which 
like to me that that will be the biggest alarm bell is that that's how we know something is not quite right and that it's it's I think not just Fabio because the man loves nothing more than to put it all on on the line in qualifying and when that's no longer enough for even a front row which given the way Yamaha is over the first two laps that front row will turn into 10th place and then you're yeah. screwed yeah. and that's you know I think that's going to be the story of a fair few races of his this season and I don't think that's ever changing are any of you believers that Lorenzo went to Honda because Honda wanted to stop him continuing at Ducati no no I think if there's any possibility of that happening it's that he went to Honda for Honda to stop him going to a satellite Yamaha where yeah. he would have been a the real threat but the Ducati thing was done and dusted by the time the Honda deal appeared. I'm I'm pretty certain of that. Um, but I okay, also don't it's think to stop him being successful yeah, somewhere else. I, I don't I don't know because I don't think that Repsol Honda see their satellite or see their their premier seat as something to park someone in. It was the number two seat. It was, but it's still the number two seat at what they you know is the team in the paddock that everyone wants to be in. From from what I remember, it was uh, new boss Alberto Puig's desperation to find somebody to replace Danny Pedrosa, who he'd clearly fallen out of love with. That that's that's how I remember it. I think, and as long as Mark is still there, he'll always be the king. Yeah, but in their eyes, if you can get a a prime replacement for like you can't just replace Pedrosa with somebody. It has to be. I mean, I guess I guess they could have gone with Cal at that point, but I think if you can get Lorenzo, you try to get Lorenzo. I I don't think Mark will always be king there. I I believe Honda are bloodthirsty enough that if Mark's sort of on again, off again form comes continues, and someone else comes in, say they sign a rookie and he comes in and does what Mark does and sticks it in the put on the you know on the top of the podium in the first race. Mark's yesterday's news. That's how Honda works. Get that. Get that. Dis- disposed yeah. of. They'll keep him around, obviously. He's got that long contract and they'll use him and, and whatever, but they'll they'll switch allegiances. You know, they've already technically kind of done it because they've switched allegiances with the whole balance of the bike. They've built a bike for Paul after one season missing Mark. Mm, God, it's a conundrum. I cannot wait for that Quattararo announcement. Where is he going? Uh, normally, I'm a bit water off a duck's back with them, these kind of announcements, but that, that one really fascinates me. Um, I don't know why. He, there's just something about it that doesn't add up, in my view, so far at least. Yeah, no, I, I, I see it. I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I think Paul put it really well in Kota when he said uh, this rider market is, he called it smoother because everyone's worried about murdering their career basically with the wrong choice because you can't really afford to do that but I think Fabio is one of the few people who can afford to take a punt because he's already champion he's already in a place where he could have never imagined himself being four years ago when he was floundering in Moto3 and Moto2 so in that regard I think if there's somebody if there's somebody who has the mentality and the career position of being able to take that punt I think it's Fabio whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether it'll pay off in the long term or be a complete disaster, those are entirely different questions in, in my mind. But then on the other side, this is a kid who 
was in a team where he was doing quite well, took a punt on another team, and it almost ended his career when he switched from Estrella to Leopard in Moto3. And that's got to be there in the back of the mind somewhere, that that he has already made a similar decision once at a younger age, and it, it very nearly broke him. Future idea. Like, it was close. Future idea. Mm-hmm. We touched on Jack Miller moving around, going to Pramac next year. We touched on that last time out with our podcast chat. Um, but on the website is the article about Alicia Spargaro, uh, an impasse at Aprilia. Is that still the case? Here we are now on the Monday before Portugal. Do you, do you, do you get a hunch about of that, Simon? I, I, I think this whole thing is a bit of sort of horse trading for money, to be honest. Um, and I think the money will be found. Let's let's remember that this these quotes that Alish said about you know potentially looking elsewhere, not being able to sort something at Aprilia, came during uh, the week between two back to back overseas races after he won a race. So he won a race, and then all of Aprilia management didn't go to Aprilia. They went to Texas. So there's been no conversation at a much higher level with senior management to say, I think we should give this guy more money. He's just won us a race. Uh, And I think maybe he was laying out his cards on the table a little bit so that when that conversation happens last week, whenever they did get back to Noale, he was just in a bit of a better position. So you described the the offer as as disappointing. Do you think that the offer would have come pre-win and then he would have been emboldened to say that it was disappointing. Yeah. I think that's probably exactly what's happened. That makes sense. That does make sense. But, you know, at the same time, again, I think I've I've brought up this exact comparison like a hundred times already because I'm a hack. But none of us thought, at least I didn't think, that Andrea Devicioso would be leaving Ducati when, when they were in their protracted negotiations period. And then suddenly, boom, those negotiations were over and Ducati had to plug in Bagnaia. Worked out okay, <laughs> but... Worked out well. Yeah, but... but the, the, the thing that's kind of a red flag for me is the, the rumours of, oh, maybe I'll go and ride for a Japanese bike that some people have said, oh, he's going to a Yamaha. I mean, if Alish leaves Aprilia, he's going cycling. He's not going to Yamaha. He's especially not going to an RNF Yamaha. So the fact that that even has slipped into the narrative makes me think that it's all smoke and mirrors. It's, it's, there's no substance to it. He's going to a forward Yamaha? Forwards back? Hey, it worked last time. Last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon, you had a good catch-up with Jack Miller uh, after Texas, and you got talking about Enea Bastianini's riding style. You got an article on the website, but just give us some insight to those people who may not, may not have read it, because it's a, it's a great analysis. So essentially, Jack is completely mesmerized by how uh, Bastianini can make the tires last. He says he's so smooth that they're all trying to replicate what he does on the bike and, and none of them can do it. Um, you know, we, we joked earlier in the podcast whenever we were talking about Suzuki's qualifying about how Ducatis don't make it to the end of the race with tyres. Well, Bastianini is the one that does. Uh, and there's something about how he's riding the bike that lets him do that rather than anything about how he set the bike up. Um, Jack alluded to his size being a part of it, not just because he's lighter and therefore stops easier and accelerates better, but, but also because it means he sits more centrally in the bike. 
Um, he's not someone that hangs off the bike. He's not someone that's scraping elbows down. He's quite compact in the machine, quite central, quite sort of... Um, Mike Halewood 250 style. I, just I, sits I, in the middle. I'm a little bit younger than you. I was going to describe it as a kind of a Michael Rudder, BSB, slightly upright, <laughs> you know, compact central bike. So, it, yeah, I, I'd imagine there's a lot of time being spent this week in Bologna looking at what he's doing to save the tyres that will then be disseminated among the other factory riders. But they do that already because they share all the data and, and they still can't do it. Yeah, but they're sharing the data, they're sharing the data and then there's analysing the data. And as with Aprilia, obviously, they've all been on flyaways now. This is the first kind of break back into Europe um, to, to crunch numbers rather than just collect numbers. And, and they're, they're, they have to be looking at that hard. Jack said that he... Bastianini doesn't use the rear of the bike to turn it and then thus saves the tires. They're not skitting over the surface. They're not scraping away on the top of the tarmac. And he just can't get the bike turned, Miller, without using the rear to kind of just turn it around. Um, Bastianini, apparently, in your article, you know, he says he's fast on the fast corner entries. He arrives, whoosh! And Bastianini said, yeah, I pay for it in the middle of the corner, right on the apex, but he gets there quicker than anybody else. So arguably, the time it takes for between getting on the brakes and getting to the apex is a longer period of time than he's slower for in the middle of the corner. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's yeah, he, it might be the new riding style. You know, we went from you know, Kenny Roberts to get his knee down and then we, we we had elbow down and then we were shoulder down with Mark and now it's a different angle. So let's see. It's 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 completely remarkable. It is it is absolutely the thing that's most insane about it is that like that was for Bastianini that Sunday longevity was the thing right away. Like it's not something that he's developed over time in MotoGP. Already last year he was like he was f- f- floundering a bit in, on Saturdays and then super reliable and excellent on Sundays and always always gaining ground and that was a that was a 19 Ducati those were not as friendly to to you know we think this Ducati fades the 19 Ducati used to fade a lot more than this yeah and it was it did not fade in in an Abastianini's hand so I'm honestly I don't love the chances of the other guys at Ducati at figuring out what exactly he's doing uh, but I also I just think it's 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 phenomenal that I think. Even when he won that pretty weird Moto2 season, when there were, I think, three title contenders, or four, four title contenders coming into the final race, was it Bastinini, Marini, Bezecchi, and maybe Sam Lowe's? Lowe's. But yeah. I don't think any of us expected that, you know, we'll move forward like a year and a half, and NA Bastinini will be a, a winner of two MotoGP races. I think he still was a bit underestimated at that point, and now he's... I, I don't know. It's 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 phenomenal, and it's it's really phenomenal because it's it's so it's so his strong suits are so obvious, and they're so so valuable. Like there's nothing else you'd want to be in MotoGP but a guy who comes on strong on Sundays. To finish your sentence, now he's hot property. It, it's as simple as that, you know, in my book. Uh, and you're all you're all nodding. Yeah, um, well, uh, great riding style, and it's coming up tops as he leads the championship. Still got 17 Grand Prix to go. The European part of the season is going to be underway in Portugal. 
Um, that frisson of excitement of getting into Europe is certainly a, a high point of the year for me and certainly for you, Simon. You're going to all the Grand Prix. What are the highlight races for you coming up from a personal point of view and also from a racing point of view? Um, good question, Toby. Um, definitely looking forward. I'm curious to see what happens at Mugello. I'm curious to see what a post-Valentino Rossi Mugello looks like. Um because I think it's going to be a good indicator of where the, the sort of the strength of the sport is at with a couple of fast young Italians at the front. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be curious. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to Jerez, even though it's not particularly one of my favorite tracks of the year, just to see, I think Jerez is a circuit that everyone knows very well. It's a circuit that everyone tests at. It's a real good benchmark for where things actually are. Um, so it'll be nice to get there and, and get that done. And I'm looking forward to our first ever trip to Finland, um, to, to Kimi Ring. So we, we've got that to look forward to, which is exciting. Yep, something new. <sighs> Honestly, the, the early feeling is that it's quite a boring circuit that's not going to make for great racing, um, which, yeah, <clears throat> and that it doesn't really play to anyone's strengths or weaknesses, but we'll, we'll see when we get there. You know, we've... We thought the same thing about um, Argentina, yeah, that it looked like quite a boring circuit, and it's delivered really well every time we've went there. So, so you know, I'm going to reserve my bets until we get there and see what it's like. Long way before we get back on a, uh, on a long-haul jet to go to the flyaways, but a return to Japan in uh, late September, early October, before Thailand, Phillip Island and Malaysia. But that's a long way away at the moment. For me, Mugello is always a high point. For me, Jerez's always a high point. Um, that buzz when you go in on a Sunday morning, there's nothing like it. You, you, you mentioned at Mugello that, well, might there be people missing? I don't think there will be. You're a certain type of person, a bit like somebody who goes to the Isle of Man. It doesn't matter who you're going to watch. You go because it's the Isle of Man. You go because it's Mugello. And if they're not cheering for Valentino Rossi, well, he hasn't won there for some years, well, they'll certainly be cheering for Grassini and Anea Bastianini. So, um, yeah, that, that'll that be very exciting. I, uh, I'm jealous of those Sunday mornings. I think they're absolutely fantastic. Just don't make the mistake that I made on my first Sunday morning that I spent there back in 1996, and I had my first you know, few proper espressos out of the then Chesterfield Aprilia hospitality, and I went, oh, these are quite good, and I think I had about six. I was a bit dizzy walking into the commentary box. <laughs> Because I was just soaking up the whole moment. And I mean, it was over a period of about an hour and a half, but because what did coffee I. Coffee is great. What did I do that for? But I remember walking down the paddock feeling a bit wobbly, going, you're a wally. But anyway, it was uh, the sun was shining and it was great. So, uh, yeah, good days, good days. Uh, I think the one I'm, <laughs> I'm most looking forward to is Assen, because I'm a boring person and Assen is the, the boringly great track that everybody, <laughs> everybody likes, and I like it. So it's yeah. not boring. It's not boring. Well, no, it's a bore. It's like when when an F one driver says his Monaco, his favorite circuit is Spa or Monaco. Like very original. Thanks for thanks for that contribution. <laughs> well, I feel the same way saying that you know Assen's really good. Yeah, Assen's really good. Uh, I'm you know I'm also still looking forward to the Red Bull Ring because first of all that I hope that new chicane at least alleviates a little bit the unease I have of watching bikes go over. A track that I genuinely love. I think the Red Bull Ring is is just a wonderful, wonderful place. More so for cars than for bikes. Uh, also helps that it's a wonderful facility. But it's just 
such a such a gorgeous gorgeous place and i hope i hope the new chicane really really works and makes it makes it more comfortable to watch but i also wonder how it's going to change the the whole picture is it going to make the suzuki's even stronger there somehow let's see Ducati's even stronger who knows with the chicane i doubt it i really doubt it because mm. it's you know it's going to rob them of the of of extra no, no. ground to repass people at the end of the straight after they've mm. passed them. Mm. They got the grunt out of the corners. Uh, uh, Simon, you touched on it in the last podcast about uh, masks not now being mandatory to use outside in the paddock. Are they letting more people inside the paddock? Yeah, it's finally starting to see, feel like normal in the paddock. Um, I think when we, like a European race with hospitalities, where masks don't have to be worn outside for the first time since November 2019 is going to feel like a, a very different world. Um, I think everyone can't wait for it. Um, the new rule as of CODA is that we follow national policy for mask wearing. So if the country says masks inside, you wear masks inside. If it says you don't, you don't. Um there are uh, a guest passes slowly starting to make a return now. So there's more people in the paddock. There's more buzz in the paddock. Um, yeah, it, it just feels feels good. Feels quite normal. Feels almost like we're back to where we started. And has everybody got a test to get into the paddock? Full stop. No, uh, vaccine certificates. Right. Which which makes life a lot easier and a, an awful lot cheaper because I think I worked out that me, just me as a freelancer, as a one-man band, has spent about 6,000 euros in PCR tests the last few years. So there's teams out there that have 40-plus people who've probably tested more than me because, you know, I've been quite lucky in that I've I've largely avoided it. But if you have a close contact in the team, then everyone else needs tested again. So they've done more tests than me. They've also tested to fly home, which I haven't done because I've been in the van. So I'm I'm sure that there's teams that have spent you know, maybe eight thousand euros per person for forty staff. I was working at Le Mans twenty four Le Mans twenty four hours back in uh, September twenty twenty, and there was a Porsche guy. So the pandemic started in the March, and this was now the September, and he said, "I've done eighty one tests already." So, uh, yeah, <clears throat> that was then, but different times. And as you say, yeah. Simon, positively, we're all, we're all coming out of it. Okay. Positively. So, uh, po- <laughs> negatively, but po- that's the one. <laughs> negatively, hopefully, Toby. <laughs> okay, Qatar, Indonesia, Argentina and Texas down. We got Portugal, Jerez, Le Mans, Mugello on the immediate horizon before the, 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 the bulk of the summer being Catalonia, Saxon ring, Assen, Faval, Finland, new track. And then we get in towards the end of the summer at Silverstone, Austria. So that's changed places. Uh, Mizana, Aragon, and then the flyways, Mategi, Thailand, Phillip Island, Sepang, and then finishing up in Valencia. Long, long way to go. 21 races, the most ever in a MotoGP season. Uh, keep in touch with therace.com. Don't forget the dash in between the and race. So the-race.com. For all your MotoGP and Formula One news, do like and subscribe our podcast. In the meantime, we will watch Portugal this weekend. We will record after the Grand Prix and you'll be able to catch up with myself, Toby, Val and Simon. Speak to you soon. Take care for now. Thank you.
The Athletic.